0: All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to Opening Set, season one, episode number six. Today's awesome, immaculate, amazing guest is none other than DJ Amir, one half of Khan Amir, the world-class digging duo. But before we get into that, here's a little housekeeping. Opening Set Podcast, you can find us on Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud, MixCloud, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you subscribe, tell a friend, rate us, tell us how we're doing at uh, podcast at gmail.com. And you know what? Six episodes in, I've never talked about this, John. You and I, we DJ as well. So, if you want to know about my DJ business, you can find me on SoundCloud and Bandcamp under King Most. I have a lot of re-edits or redirections and mixes. Also on Instagram under uh, Hey King Most, and my man John Reyes. You can find him on IG under the awesome title of Stank Palmer, and also on SoundCloud uh, under John Reyes, J O N R E Y E S. Is that right? Okay, he also has some very fire edits. So maybe you can come to our DJ nights and you'll know what our DJ nights are because you follow us on Instagram. Or you could come holler at us and book us both to go DJ in your city, town, and or uh, function. As I stated earlier, our special guest for today is Amir. He's one half of the legendary mixtape duo, Khan and Amir, former vice president of Fat Beats Records and the head of 180 Proof Records who's uh, putting out a lot of awesome jazz, funk, soul music, especially uh, the Strata catalog. And we talk about all of that at length. And while we're going through all this great New York hip hop history, there was a change in the conversation. And it's when I asked him about learning how to mix.
1: I have to thank the love of my life, DJ Reborn, AKA Robin. She taught me, like when we first got together, she was like, I know you, I know you got records, but I can't be with a man that can't DJ. You know what I'm saying? So she helped me and she taught me and I just put in the work. I'm not trying to pretend that, you know, I was like, dj scratch or whatever you know since day one you know i learned to dj and i'm still learning to this day you know there's still things that you know, i want to continue to keep learning about but it's so great it's so great to hear like your reaction and other people's because i want to be able to like be out there and dj and mix and please a crowd and take people on a journey and all those things that come along with it you know what i'm saying like when i was young watching these cats do it you know that's what i want to do
0: so in the combo, we get a little self-indulgent, we get a little nerdy about records and record culture and hip hop stuff, which I love. You know, if you want to hear stories about Q-Tip and Diamond D and Pete Rock buying records, this is for you. He also schooled me a lot on Boston hip hop history, uh, DJ history, I should say, something I did not know anything about. So that was very cool. I-, I was lucky really to have this conversation with him because we get so much insight on somebody that's at the start of, you know, obscure record collecting for uh, DJs. And then we get this awesome insight from somebody that was on the front lines of the indie hip-hop explosion, an implosion that was happening in the late 90s or 2000s. And then we get all this kind of firsthand accounts of the business and again, the vision of reaching old music from the past and how to do it right and how to do it respectfully. You can follow him on IG and SoundCloud under DJ Amir70. That's A M I R, by the way. And you can find him on Mixcloud as just DJ Amir, A M I R, as well. Check it out. Um, we go about an hour or so and we really get into it. So hopefully you have a good time and uh, tell a friend about Amir and Opening Set Podcast. Thank you. What's up, everybody? Thank you for listening to Opening Said. This is your host, King Most, with my main man, John Reyes, riding shotgun. Today's very, very special guest, an old friend, hmm. a new best friend, I should say. Yes. My man Amir. Give it up. Make some noise. Roll air horns. Confetti, confetti, confetti. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Thank my you, man. man.
1: Thank you. It's been, you know, great to be here in the Bay, man. It's been seven. Long years since I was last here, so. Yeah,
0: and that might have been the last time we saw each other. We were trying to figure that out last night. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, the last time I was here,
1: I know Khan and I played with uh Wajid. I don't know where it was. All I remember was that Dave
0: Chappelle showed up at the end, which mm-hmm. was cool. But mm-hmm. that was about it.
1: I mean, that was the last time I was here. Yeah. And then we also did something uh, with Platter in Oakland at the time.
0: Yeah, I think the last time we rocked. Was when we first met. It was for this party series called SFNY, yes, which was a great party. Yo, if you can find photos, I look so hungover. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> that's you know partly because yes, I was partying, but also New York is a. What do you say? A pressure cooker, meat grinder? Yeah, all of that in one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. yeah, yeah. It's so It's hard
1: to live there, yeah,
0: man. I didn't know this, but you spent 20 some odd
1: years in Brooklyn, New York, right? Well, not just in Brooklyn. I've been in New York for 23 years now. I've lived in the Bronx. I lived in Harlem, both on the east and west side. I lived in Spanish Harlem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I lived in Flatbush. I lived in Crown Heights. And I lived in Park Slope first, when I okay. used to call it Dark Slope, when it was ill. Not like how it is now with baby carriages everywhere. It's <laughs> like... like projects, cats from Gowanus Projects used to come over there and rob people, you know,
0: and now I live in Bedside. Okay. So I feel, and this is uh, with a previous guest, Neil Armstrong, New York mm. at one point was just wild. Wild for the night. Yeah. Yeah. It was not, it's not what it is today It's at all. definitely
1: not what it is today. I mean, you know, I lived in Crown Heights for like a month and that's only because when I lived there. The first door, when you walked into the apartment, it didn't lock and it was a crack house on the first floor. So every time you walked in, you had to be on some like, yo, who's behind me? What's up? And when I was moving that day and I was moving mad records from the top floor down, the drug dealers were like, yo, son when are you going to hurry up, man? you fucking up my business right now. Like, when the hell are you going to, like, move? And my man who was helping me from co-op city in the Bronx, it was just way out in the Bronx, was like, damn, it ain't even this bad in the Bronx. <laughs> he was like, yo, what's going on out here? I was like, yo, I had to leave. And then, like, a month later, my roommate, this the last time I had a roommate, he was like, yo, the two white kids that moved downstairs from us, one of them got stabbed in the neck by a, a crackhead. Fuck. And I was like, see, that's why I moved. That's why you moved. And now when you go over there to that part of, Crown Heights, uh-huh. Franklin Avenue and Lincoln Place. It's artisanal and coffee and like, dude, like, um, so, you know, uh, <laughs> and I'm like,
0: wow. Shit has changed, man. Montana's uncle, I think he got stabbed here. You know, twenty-something years ago. ago. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, wow, because that was in '99 wow. that well, that's happened. Only only '99? I was yeah. picturing like something. No, that was '99. <laughs> okay. I mean, and and actually, it's still <laughs> like in, the second Jay Z album. Yeah, yeah, exactly. around that time. Oh uh, man,
1: and even when I when I first moved in with my girl in bed style in like uh, 2011, one time my homegirl like. Text me, he was like, yo, Amir, are you all right? I'm like, why? What's the matter? Somebody got shot at the park
0: up the street. Some dudes just sprayed up the whole park. And I'm like, wow. That's still bad stuff for you, man. New York City. Yeah. But before that, so I said half your life in New York. The other half was from... Boston. Boston. Yeah, and And Boston was Grammy too. (laughs) Okay, and this is one of my biggest questions because, as I said earlier, there's a lot that can be, has been and can be written about New York City, rightfully so. Some things about Bay Area and LA, DJ culture, Chicago... But when it comes to... Yeah, yeah, Detroit, yeah. But Boston DJ culture, I know nothing about it. And Mm I want to say maybe a lot of people feel that same way too. Like it's a mystery to us. Right. So, yo, give us a, you don't have to give us the Wikipedia, but like a, right. you know, the cliff notes of Boston DJ culture and maybe how it relates to you in the end of it. All right. So I'll start with this. I moved to New York with two other DJ friends
1: um, who were known back then as the Vinyl Reanimators.
0: Oh, uh, Shame and... Shame and
1: Sean C. <sighs> who lived together. Okay. So shout out to Shame.
0: Yeah. And for the listeners that don't know, Vinyl Reanimators were this amazing record collecting crew and producers and Scratch, and they put out little bootleg DJ white labels and mixtapes mm-hmm. so that people are listening and incline. Look those up. I was just listening to some of those things like last year, and they still sound so dope. Yeah. And to know yeah. they're made in a very analog, pre computer oh, yeah. world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you three guys, wow. We lived together,
1: and so I knew them. And then, you know, I knew like Edo G's first uh, DJ, and his name is uh, Nestle Quick. I knew him from back in the days um, because we used to have this place. uh, Man, I can't remember the name of it now, but him and this other dude named Ninja B. Ninja B, for those who are real... DMC? Yeah, turntablist and stuff like that. He was the one, I don't know the name of the scratch, but he invented this scratch that everybody does now. It's like the whole, like, fading down. uh, uh, Oh, the echo scratch. The echo scratch. Okay, Okay. so he was the first one to do that at the New Music Seminar back in, like, I think, 92 or something like that. He was battling one of the Supermen.
0: Okay, and and, and New Music Seminar, NMS, and it was a very early, popular DJ battle on the East Coast that if you were battling anywhere in the world or in the country, eventually you had to go there and, right. you know, hopefully win or at least get some exposure. So exactly. it was a very important, pivotal DJ battle.
1: Yeah, very important. So, you know, I know those cats, and but, you know, that's just the hip-hop side. Now, like, with The House, my man DJ Bruno, who was, like, is still kind of like a Boston legend in terms of DJing, He was always around, you know. So I grew up around a lot of that, you know, in terms of DJ culture in Boston. And we definitely have had that. We've had cats that, you know, used to, you know, play at some of the clubs downtown and, and, you know, disco and stuff like that. Boston has a DJ culture. And a lot of those cats used to go to New York, come down to New York and play. You know, sometimes you know they would come down. Like I know Bruno and the rest of those cast, they would come down and see Larry Levan DJ.
0: Okay, so this is like
1: seventies now. Yeah, seventies. Some of these guys are seventies, seventy. You know, they're 80s, like nineties. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So they would come down there and you know, like learn from him or you know learn about records and stuff like that. So there was always that, you know. And I just grew up around a lot of cast that were DJs, and for me, record collecting was always something that I was. Into because my father collected records and he wasn't a DJ, but you know, he collected jazz, and every weekend was his weekend to like listen to his music because you know, he worked in the shipyards building you know, ships, so you know, that was a
0: hard that's hard physical you know? labor, yes,
1: physical labor. So his thing was like, I'm gonna sit down and listen to jazz on the
0: weekend. And was he as deep as you eventually became for digging for jazz or just kind of whatever was on the surface? No, he definitely was deep in his jazz, and he also my father grew up with uh, Jackie Byard,
1: who was, um, who played with some, um, I was about to say Sun Ra, but not Sun Ra, he played with um. Sonny no No. Uh, oh, Charles Mingus. He played with oh. Charles Mingus, uh-huh. Jackie Byrd. But they, my father's from Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, they went to high school together. And through that, my father became, you know, like a jazz head, and he collected everything. And he also recorded stuff off the radio on, a, on original, <laughs> original reel-to-reel. So I have all these reel-to-reels from, like, 1956 to maybe the early 70s that he recorded of all the
0: artists that used to yeah. come and Play in Boston, and we'll talk about this more later. But so funny, now you have reel to reels of other (laughs) jazz artists, (laughs) exactly. So, so your father was a a jazz head, and then you're seeing DJ Bruno, you were a younger cat, yeah. Bruno would go to Larry LeVan's Paradise Garage, yeah, blow his mind, come back, and then you started seeing other hip hop DJs. So, right, and and this is around this time when you started like getting your first, you know, turntables and getting you know, becoming a DJ. This is what the 80s or 90s, or yeah. I mean, back then, you know, and like how people,
1: well. People don't collect CDs like that anymore. And people, I guess, buy. Never know. (laughs) That's true. People collect. I guess, or buy MP3s or stream now. But in order to get music back then, you'd have to go get the 12 inch from the store. Or you know, I would buy records from Woolworths. You know, you buy records back then. You know, so was the
0: target of its time.
1: Yeah, so I would go around the corner from where I lived at and buy records. I'd spend my allowance on it. Okay, and that's what I would do. You know, one year from my um, my birthday, I think it might have been my tenth or or eleventh birthday. My mother bought me a turntable. A
0: Technique 1200 or? No,
1: it, she, yeah, she, no. <laughs> we didn't got it like that, Sonny. <laughs> no, we didn't have it like that. She, she gave me <laughs> shipyards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She brought me, you know, um, a turntable and I was just like, yeah, I just wanted to get down. And But then I would see, when we'd have block parties and I would see cats, you know, trying to do their thing, you know, whether they were cutting and scratching or playing, you know, disco records and breaks and stuff
0: like In that. In Boston. In Wait, Boston, uh, yeah. What year is this, my man? This is like late 70s, early 80s. So the whole hip hop aesthetic of Park Jams somehow happened in Boston at the same time coincidentally or it got brought over because that's well, we, fascinating yeah even before I even heard of not heard of hip hop but yeah but
1: even before I even heard of hip hop like block parties have always been something that's been big on the east coast like mm-hmm. whether it was in Bed-Stuy or in Philly or in Boston that's been going on since like the 40s and 50s and people would play music Outside. So it was like a natural progression. So when hip hop came along, because that was a popular thing that the young kids like myself wanted to hear, you would have a hip hop DJ or someone who purported to himself to be a hip hop DJ. And that's DJ. like playing breaks.
0: Like yeah, playing
1: breaks, you know. Um, not really blending and stuff like that, because all that stuff was new to a lot of these cats. You know what I'm saying? So, okay, like, but the idea of breaks was oh yeah, the idea of breaks is not just something you know that only just stuck in New York and then didn't come to Boston until the 80s. It was already there in in Whoa. the late 70s. So, is that widely known? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, a lot of us, you know, like have family in New York. And new York is not that far away, okay. so you would travel down and see that, and you take that which you know back to
0: Boston and be like, look, check out, you know, this new style of DJing or check out this new music or whatever. Okay. So like last weekend of June, someone go to New York block party, July 4th weekend, someone in Boston is already cutting up Apache and all these classic breaks.
1: Yeah. And then a lot of times, you know, you'd have cousins in New York that, you know, they would record stuff off the radio, like Mr. Magic and all that other stuff later on. And you'd get those tapes
0: and you'd start going to look for those records. And Mr. Magic was a very pivotal WBLS DJ. Yeah. Him...
1: Red Alert, you know, Molly Maul, all those cats, when they were on the radio, WBAI with um, the Awesome Two, you know, Teddy Ted and um, Special K, you know, cats like that. You would listen to these radio shows. And for me later on, especially when I before I moved to New York, it was Stretch Armstrong and Barbito, you know. And then when I got there, it was like, you know, I had one of those double cassette decks that flipped automatically and I would just put a two hour tape in there back when you had two hour cassette tapes and I would just go to sleep and like you know wake up in the morning and get on the subway and listen to my Sony Walkman on the way to work and just be like and it's from uh, Stretch and Bob's Stretching Stretch show. and Bob okay. you know and then later on it was like DJ Riz and Eclipse they had a show with oh, wow. uh, Martin Moore and um, Mayhem they were competing man because they would always have like all the hottest MCs I didn't know, I didn't know they were competing so it was wow. like crazy dude it was like so many different shows out there at the time and it just it blew my mind when I like I already knew a lot of this but when you in the thick of it at that time it's just like
0: wow and did you know that this is something very special you're just like yo yeah, I'm just waking up Sunday morning hearing a bunch of crazy rap and you just kind of going nah the- I knew it was I mean after a while you kind of know
1: like especially because of my uh, two roommates they were producing stuff at that time and so they knew Stretch and Bob they knew Martin Moore and they knew Riz and so I got to go with them up to these shows and I'm just sitting there like that's how I met Cypher Sounds. Me and Cypher Sounds used to carry DJ Riz's records up to his show back in the days. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how I know him. And I know Riz and I know Eclipse. And, you know, well, Eclipse and I know each other from my time at Fat Beats
0: as well, too, uh-huh. but... And we'll talk about that for sure. That's another big thing. So you mentioned your two roommates and that's the people you made, that kind of big leap from Boston to New York. Because right. you kind of got sick of Boston or you figured you're trying to make it or, or what's No, up?
1: well, my thing is I got accepted to the new school for social research for grad school. So that was my reason for coming to New York. Oh, you're an and academic. Yeah, I was. I was <laughs> not the academic. That's, most people don't know that. I, I didn't finish because... To be honest with you, man, like stretch and all those guys used to come to our house. I mean, just mad people used to come to our house and they used to record with Sean and um and Shane the vinyl, the vinyl reanimators and I didn't feel like studying it anymore Yeah, right? you got, plus I couldn't anyways because they were like banging out beats all the time and I couldn't even concentrate so I was like you know what I can't go against them so I'm just gonna join them so I would just be in there just soaking
0: up all this stuff like you know uh, like the top dudes at the time just hang out in your living yeah. room while you were trying to like annotate a, yeah a paper. exactly Okay, exactly they were all everybody <laughs> was there you, Stretch <laughs> you
1: know, just like all of them Stretch were there Armstrong, right? yeah Stretch Armstrong was there you know like and that's why I know him still to this day you know also through my time at Fat Beats L.O.G. Recorded an EP at our house. The first L Fudge
0: 12 inch on um Rockus was recorded there. And he was like a big he was a big deal in the indie world that yeah. you were definitely a part of. Yeah, exactly. So all the stuff is happening straight at the gate when you get to New York. Oh, in, it New was York. like
1: then later on when Shane moved back to Worcester because he was like, I can't take New York. We had another roommate named Jamison Grillo, who used to work at Tommy Boy and all that other stuff. And he had connections. So then a lot of people that he knew were coming to like. I remember I met E Love who was the DJ for L.O. Kuche? he came to the house one time. I was like, who shit did he love? Like, wow. You know, so it was, it was a mind fuck for me, man, because I just got to see and experience so much when I first got to New York Like I hit the ground running Yeah I was about to say This is all like Within weeks, months There yeah, was no, exactly. no
0: Hey I'm trying to figure out New York No, no, no,
1: no I mean I was trying to figure it in out high. In terms of like Financially To like pay the rent Pay my half of the
0: rent You know What was your rent like Just for just Oh for dude life. It
1: was three of us And we had a huge place On 4th Avenue Anybody who's from Brooklyn Will know Like if you live In New York right now If you live on 4th Avenue It's
0: way expensive But for three roommates It was three thirty five dollars <laughs> per month that's, like, that's unheard that's of. That's like garage. That's a garage in San Francisco. Dude, And now it goes for like $3,000, 4000 yeah. Okay. It's, okay.
1: okay.
0: And I remember our, our, our landlord, Marty, man, he had a check cashing place up on
1: 5th and we had to go pay the rent. remember one time me and Sean went to go pay the rent and he always had this big brolic dude behind him with this big-ass cannon Standing behind him, like. Because it was that type of neighborhood. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> Damn, dude, like, we just come to pay the rent. You, I felt like I'm about to get stuck up. Oh, man. That was your world. That was. Yeah, the, it was the world back then.
0: You know? It, that's always what I hear that people really kind of romanticize that, yeah, New York was wild and it was crazy and things could happen, like you said earlier. But at the mm-hmm. same time, there was a brilliant kind of urban yeah. culture happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two, like, good moments I want to ask you about. Um, you mentioned kind of the Fat Beats thing, but before Fat Beats, you're already mm-hmm. record collecting. Yeah. Tell me about because you know I'm obviously too young to know about that and I wasn't living in New York tell me about the early days of like beat digging kind of the Roosevelt mm. Hotel oh, thing yeah, yeah, and yeah, A1 Record oh, yeah. Academy because I oh. mean again I think I didn't get to record collecting until like the late 90s early 2000s and I was already a very established thing Right, people were making compilations there was right. lists and bootlegs right, and, boot right, right. and mixtapes that you were also a big part of right. but kind of give me like the right before the kind of mirror on track era of digging okay so like when I got to New York you know my roommates are obviously huge record collectors
1: so I learned a lot from them as well but also on my own man like I would just go out and
0: I would just find places like I would go to the Roosevelt Hotel and the Roosevelt that was every year and that was like every year and that was the record convention where you would see Q-Tip Q-Tip there was also
1: the Mark Ballroom which was in Union Square the New Yorker I used to go to so we'd go to all of these places and I had a friend from Boston named Boston Bob if any record collectors real record collectors if you know Boston Bob he had
0: every fucking thing okay so that literally like you would go to these conventions and see premiere buy a record and you would be standing right next to him i would be like oh shit that's premiere and he literally pull a record and it'd be the record that ends up becoming massive oh yeah we his biggest hits yes it, was exactly that, like the lines were that close like all right yeah. sunday by the record monday making a fucking hip-hop classic yeah and, that's just, and it's like all it it's all happening at the same time like a big stu- oh yeah
1: you know even before i moved to uh, new york i used to come with bob and i would help him sell records at the show and bob was like yo I have to tell you that a lot of the Tribe records, you know, like albums, I was responsible for a lot of what? it because Q-Tip bought a lot of that stuff from him because he just had it. You know what I'm saying? He was way ahead of his time in
0: terms of records and stuff like that. So the, the dealer or Q-Tip? Both. No, the dealer. Okay. The dealer, Bob, you know, uh, Bob Gibson is his name. So these dealers, you can say they definitely shaped modern music because what they happened to have that day. It was that. Yeah, it was that. I mean, and the dude from, um, uh,
1: man, he just passed away too. Um... I can't remember his name now but uh, he was a big producer he was in this group that was kind of like they had a big commercial hit oh PM Dawn yeah PM Dawn the oh, dude from PM Dawn I've heard this story he was there yo everybody hated him because he had so much money he would just buy all the biggest rarest records because he just had the money Diamond and everybody be like damn this motherfucker again like, the
0: set of bliss on and yeah. that's so funny because his biggest hit or one of the biggest hits is based on like an 80s song that like we all know that yeah. our moms would have in their collection yeah exactly okay but you know
1: God bless the dead but you know I ended up I'm getting to know him, and he was a—he was actually a really cool dude,
0: man. Okay, a so, really, really cool dude. So you're already kind of like rubbing elbows with like other producers, other record guys, yeah. and at this point, was the record collecting still just producers, or was it kind of everyday thing? Because that's one thing I was tripping about. Like, yes, people were buying albums, but were there people digging for deeper stuff? And if so, was it just because they were DJs or producers or just fans? Some
1: some of that, but also people were just like, you know, that was the end thing for, it started to become the end thing. Everybody started to like, you know, collect records and stuff like, like that. Like trendy, like fashion. Trendy. Yeah, it Whoa. was like everybody was like, you weren't really a hip hop dude unless you collected breaks. Okay. And that was a big thing, you know. And so I, the other thing too is when I moved to New York, I got an internship at Big Beat. Okay. Records. I, so okay. I was there doing the art. That's so how I know you know Tame One and uh, El Sensei and all of so them. The because, artifacts. Fun of artifacts because okay. you know I was working their records and. One of the A&Rs, um, well, two of the a rs Mike Karen, who's huge now, like works for Atlantic. I think he's like VP of Atlantic or something like that. And Big Daddy Reef, who used to write for- um, I remember
0: that. I recognize that name. He used yeah. to write for the um, source, but he was an a and one and did time- Did he do like Loud eventually? Or he signed a bunch of people that were like real pivotal. I, but the Reef, the, the names- The remember. Reef, he he did stuff at Atlantic. The stuff for um, Loud, that's Scott Free. Okay, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Matt- Um yeah. I forgot his last name, but, you know. We're doing great with names. But <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: I'm like, yeah, hey, it's showing my
0: old age right no, now. <laughs> oh, we're just showing my lack of details. So um, <laughs> <laughs> don't feel bad. So,
1: like, you know, like, one day I used to sell drum breaks to Mike, um, Karen, and Reef. And one day Reef was like, yo, I can't pay you, but I can give you a box of artifacts promos and you can take them to the store called A1. I was like, what the hell A1 is A1? Reckon? Yeah. Okay. And
0: I was like, what the hell is what that? What year is this? 96. The okay. first year they opened. Okay. A1, and this right? is still bef- Right before the mixtapes You started doing. Yeah this is right before The mixtapes Okay so the sample Howling the, That's still going along People are doing bootlegs Yeah Hip hop is still going along yeah. And then yo Go to this new store Called A1 And even I know about, I think I maybe Might have gone to A1 Before they closed But if No you, they're still open Oh they're still Okay They're going strong They're talking the about li- Sound library. Yeah TSL Okay A1 oh, Such a cool little store It feels so like bare bones, grimy, but mm-hmm. I can tell they still the spot. And then even for somebody like me, a young kid from San Francisco, I knew that was like something. That was like a mecca. The way people come yeah. out to San Francisco and visit Groove Merchants. Yeah, like yeah. So you bring a box of Artifacts promos. Yeah,
1: and I gave them to the guys. And instead of me taking the cash, I was like, yo, because it was just a mess. You think it was discombobulated now. But back then it was like two British cats that were running the store, Steve and uh, Rob. So they had a couple of joints in there. And I was like, yo, actually, I'll trade it in for these. Then I started going there. I brought my roommates there. Then at one point in time, after I started working for Fat Beats, when the two Brits left, there
0: was a French guy named (laughs) Aldo. Okay, I know of this name.
1: Yeah, Aldo started working there. So he asked me to work there. And I didn't need the money, so I worked there for records. And dude, all the cats that were from France that you know he knew that were record collectors they brought all the extremely rare records that's how a lot of that stuff ended up on tracks because I was just like getting Mark
0: like Marc Moulin Ball of Eyes exactly one,
1: one of his friends gave me the white cover placebo record for free he was like here just take it it, it was it. VG plus I was like <laughs> I'll take that we're going over some people's heads but this is like
0: yeah <laughs> I was like yeah
1: I mean <laughs> you know like the records like Cortex which is another wow. big um, like I got that I got my godchild record from there from Um French guys yeah French guys
0: I, know, I a told store.
1: Fogo or Something like that Like all those records man Like and so that's when my mind started to expand to get into like really European records and jazz and stuff like that because I didn't really know about that stuff. Did anybody else though? I mean, I mean, there were a few like, you know, I know Spinner and uh, yeah. Kenny Dope, you know, they were
0: on that too because they were buying the same records from the same guys that I was. So again, it's that whole thing of like, like this little pond feeds this whole ecosystem. Right. Because Roosevelt, which I mentioned earlier, this yeah. little place now is like culturally is like impacting and shaping the rest of the world. Yeah, their music. exactly. So you just kind of became, you were part of that scene. Right. And all right. And then I got to ask them. So, from going from that to like, all right, I'm now getting records for free. I'm trading, I'm hanging out. I'm that guy at the store. Like, yo, let me start recording these things in mm-hmm. a mixtape. Because mm-hmm. one of your big claims of fame with your partner, Khan, right. you guys did Off on Track. The On Track first. On Track. And then Off Track. I'm sorry. On yeah. Track. And in context, at the time, this was early 2000s, right? No, the first one we did was in 1997. Okay. And I think you got to remember this is pre-internet. So for a mixtape to travel from outside New York to, again, San Francisco, California, when I'm Mm -hmm. a little kid, or to Mm -hmm. LA or Chicago or across the world, that had to be something. And there was a few other people kind of in your lane. And this whole format was... Um, you would happen to find the samples of whatever, all the big hip hop records at the time. Right. And you were playing them in a mixtape format at the same time. Like you're beating everybody else to the punch. Right. That's so, what we're trying to do. Yeah. Okay. And so how did, what was this, this idea you just said, yo, let's do this tape or well, well, I saw I'll what give they you, did. Okay. I'll give you the, so, okay.
1: Um, DJ Moro from, uh, Japan. Yeah. He's one king of those Right. Yeah. So when I was at Fat Beats, you know, we were distributing his, um, cassettes in America. And also I knew about the con man and soul man from um, Philadelphia. And then my roommate, uh, Shame, he put out one called Traveling Through Sample Land yes, in like yeah. 94. So I, I was already immersed in all of this stuff. But then Con and I, we used to play mixes for each other. I'd be like, "Yo, here's a mix of, you know, some rare stuff. And he would do this. And so we were like, you know, well, we try our hand at this. So we recorded it. I dubbed all of them in my house on a double cassette deck. Okay. Right, And I would travel around in a backpack and I would just go to stores and like try to like do you want this? Do you want this? You want to buy a sample tape? Yeah. People were <laughs> like, like, what? Because I'm going to places where they're selling like Ron G tape. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Yeah. And
0: that's, Buck okay. Wild and all, you know, like the DJ Clue. And they're like, uh, no. Nah. Yeah. And then for, again, Ron G, all this, it was like the street tape, freestyle tape. Yep. Their game was about having the exclusive. So like we got yeah. the brand new little Kim Jay Z right. track, or I got right. the brand new Freestyle
1: from whoever. You yeah. Know what I'm saying? Tony
0: Touch mixtape. Yeah. We're going to get 50 rappers at the time that were amazingly yeah. hot. Yep. Yep, yep. So you had to basically go fight against that. So yeah. at, at first it was uphill battle and then eventually, oh, yeah. how did it go? Well, come?
1: the first 100 on track cassettes went to Japan because when I was at Fat Beats, yeah. I asked, you know, Fat Beats if they wanted to distribute it and they were like, no. So then with this one dude, <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, You work for them, right? Exactly. <laughs> like, no. This one dude who was a Japanese DJ hero, God bless the dead. Um, he was like, yo, I got have a client in Japan that wants to buy 100 of them. And I was like, Yeah.
0: Fuck that! So and I, at the time, you know, Japan overseas was always like this good little gold mine for the oh, yeah. artists and they always prepaid upfront. They
1: paid for shipping. They, they almost
0: buy anything. Uh, that's and yeah, that exactly. kind of ruined it eventually. But yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So then, you know, then after that, I was almost going to give up on making volume two because I was like, you know what, man? Like, I'm just tired of walking around with these, and I can't really get any traction. And I also have been lucky, too, because I had a friend that went to Temple University, and she was like, there's this hip-hop group that um, from this guy from this hip-hop group that lives downstairs from me, and she didn't like (laughs) hip-hop. But she used to play my cassette a lot, and he came up one day and was like, yo, what is this? Uh And this dude was Black Thought. Oh, fuck. This <laughs> is 1997. Uh-huh. So, when I come to visit her one day and I go downstairs and I knock on his door, I wake him up, he's in his boxes and everything, and we share brandy and we smoke a little. And but in
0: he, the morning, I, first thing? In the morning.
1: morning. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm a morning person. So, then he, <laughs> you're he, a morning drinker as well. <laughs> yes. yeah. So, I was like, all right, cool. And I got a drop from him for the volume two. Okay. And then, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah, so, yeah, then yeah. that's how that happened. And then Gangstar did an in store at Fat Beats for um, the Moment of Truth album. Right. So I got a drive from Guru and Premiere. And that started the tape off. And so the number two or number two. N- number two. OK. Right? So then what happens is like, OK, so Fat Beats didn't want to still do it. So one day still. So no, but no. Yeah. So so what happened was one day I put the cassette into the cassette deck in the office and I just let it play. And it starts off with that. What what, what would you do? You know, the gang star sample, whatever that was that, you know, my steez. The owner comes flying out of his office. like, yo, what is that? I was like, that's the new on track. I was like, yo, you want to like, what's up? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I got you. So, Just on the little snippet. Yeah,
0: because <laughs> it was like nobody knew what that was. Okay, and that was a big part of the allure of these tapes that you would break a sample. Samples no one had bad. it. And yep. people were like, I need to find this now. Yeah, exactly. And when we did MIA from um, Missing Links with the, um, the- Now Dr. Dre, next episode Yeah, so Dave McCollum. And
1: I also had an advantage because Vic from the Beat Nuts- who did that beat came in the office and played us that record so I was like yo that's David McCullum." so I'm like oh, you already oh. had it I already had it so I'm like I'm on this this is going on the next on track because I already know that this is going to be fucking so banging you're like insider trading yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was like yo I was <laughs> on it I was like I, I, I couldn't let it go and so that I think that was part of the reason why we were successful because I just was like you know I'm going to have to beat everybody else who's been doing this a lot longer than me and Khan to the punch and a lot of this stuff, and so that's how it happened, man.
0: Yeah, and that was always the mystery, like how I was thinking. You know, at the time, I didn't have not that I have amazing records now, but I was like, how did they get this so fast? I was like, oh, it must be a New York thing, must be a hip hop thing. You were just basically getting the that promo. Exactly. Was like <laughs> I was getting a lot mystery of mystery solved. That's yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, I was like, oh, sorry. Yeah, I remember hearing something that producers were starting to hit you up for oh, yeah. good and bad reasons. Or they'd sample off your tape without you oh, yeah. asking. And yeah, it, they would do a lot of that stuff. Nothing like that happens today. I think maybe the equivalent of that is maybe kids sampling off of YouTube or... or SoundCloud or, now. Yeah, I2. which is... Uh, whatever, man. You know, dope song is a dope song. But yeah. again, that's, this is still pretty weird and it stands out. Yeah, let me know about that because that's... So, again, stuff I just kind of heard secondhand. I can't remember these... Produ-
1: again, I can't remember their names, but like... <laughs> there was a, many producers that used to come to us and they would be like, yo, can you make us a, a CD of, of samples? And they'd be like, how much do you charge for that? And I'm like, at first, we'd be like, I don't know, $500, $1,000. And they'd be like, why would I pay you $500 for that? I was like, well, not only am I going to give you the sample, you know, uh, tape of samples, but I'll let you know the publishing and I'll give you the information on it so you don't have to look for it. So a lot of these cats were just so cheap. And I'm like, dude, one of these tracks, you'll make more to make your money back. Yeah, totally. In the advance alone. Exactly. So Khan may have gotten a little further than me because he kept, you know, sticking with it. But for me, I was like, nah. I had a meeting with, um... The non porter. Who did you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Denon you know, Denon's still cool with me. I gave him some stuff for my catalog. I'm waiting to hear from him on that stuff.
0: But the Strata East. No,
1: the... It, all right, so I have to correct you. It's not Strata East, it's Strata Records. Okay, Strat- i yes. Strata
0: East is from New York, Strata is from Detroit. Okay, yes, yes. So. Right. Yeah, I'm getting checked on my own podcast. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> getting punked. No, that's awesome. Okay, but we'll talk about this, like the Strata, the Strata. Right, right. So then Denon Porter was, yeah, he's got stripes. He's got. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got been plaques. doing his thing, yeah. you know, and the last
1: time I was in Detroit when I had a gig last year, you know, we tried to hook up. We didn't get a chance to but i gave him i gave him a bunch of stuff and there's this other dude named king karnoff who's another up-and-coming producer i gave him some stuff and he's doing stuff with like j cole and everybody else you know so i still do kind of dabble into it a little but for the most part a lot of these
0: producers back then man they were just super cheap and they they didn't want to pay for anything and would any remarkable like hits would ever get made sampling your mixes I'm sure that they have, because
1: sometimes I could tell, like, at least back then when I was really paying attention, that they we're getting it off of our cassettes or our CDs. Wow. You know, you could just tell because either they didn't do a good job of taking out Khan's cuts or whatever <laughs> or, you know, like the blend from the next song is still coming in. You know what I'm saying? Like they were kind of sloppy about it. I was like, yeah, that's us.
0: And knowing that you worked at the distributor that's going to put out the record, right. not even putting tune. Too... Yeah, Sometimes people fail because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like really just yeah. how can you be so stupid? So speaking yeah. of the distributor that you keep mentioning, Fat Beats, Right. I mean, reading about you and just knowing about you, you were at one point Like the man, the gatekeeper for independent hip-hop and this is the eras of uh, late 90s or early 2000s. And I think it's kind of funny because that was definitely an era I came up in and like, I think it just kind of happened. It came and went and no one's really documented or talking about that. Yeah. And I think in an era right now where everything's instant, everything's streaming, but at the same time people are buying records again. Right. right. So I think there's definitely some kind of connection to what happened today. I think, first of all, people selling 20,000 units of a vinyl single was common. 50,000? that was very common for us get the very, fuck out of here. very I'll take you some 20,000 so stories of a vinyl single that had, yeah. if you get somebody going like gold that's like a big deal like a major artist that was like gold. gold for us you know. no and today though like oh yeah. you want gold Like it's great oh wow yeah. and now yeah. 20,000 20, copies of a vinyl hip hop single and underground independent mm-hmm. what the fuck dude yeah. what, what
1: was this, Fat Beats Zoo at the time what was uh, just, well the original office it was really small it was on Debrosa Street in um, Tribeca downtown um, Manhattan and I'll I'll give you one story. So like one time. Give me uh, all the stories. (laughs) One (laughs) nine nine. Right. The common sense single on Ruckus because we were the exclusive vinyl distributor for Ruckus for the world. So I had to fax in. (laughs) I'm still when you had to fax. I had to fax (laughs) in a P.O. a purchase order for 30,000 copies of that. Right. And the owner was like, I had to pass it by him first. He was like, are you sure you have orders for 30,000? I was like, yes, they're going to come in that day and they're going to leave the same day. It's not only that we were shipping 20,000 over time, it was like we're shipping 20,000, 30,000 in the same day, right? So they came in, there were so many orders for them that I had to tell my sales staff to go out there and help pack their own orders because the warehouse couldn't catch up with it. They came in on pallets And they left on pallets So was this just like a You guys were Money over fist type of time for Oh people? dude it was Man I wish I saved Some of that money man Because we were making So much money back then And it was just like We were living I mean all the D.I.T.C. stuff You know digging um, in the
0: crate That's like big, Fat yeah. Joe Diamond D O.C. Big L, big L. These yeah. are like classic New York rappers Yeah they
1: all come through the office That's why I know All of those guys You know um, And big they got L-
0: 30,000 20,000
1: years Oh yeah easily Easily Like the <laughs> full scale EP By Showbiz and AG That we
0: did oh, that uh, In 98 yeah. I think we sold over time like 70,000 copies of that shit, man. And that was all going between you guys and them. So they're probably yeah. making more money off an of indie release than of a two luxury exactly. albums. Exactly. I mean, that's is, when you could make
1: money back then
0: too. Yeah, yeah, like that. It's kind of a sweet revenge for them actually. Yeah. yeah oh, like, yeah. Yeah, fuck a label. I'll you just know? do it myself. We'll do it And way. I
1: remember when it's, things started to go down a little because I remember the first dilated album, which is a triple vinyl album. That was Kanye um, early, that was, uh, This is before Kanye This is the first first album uh, of okay. the
0: platform Okay yeah yeah that, But that was like underground. At least out here in Cali That was You could not Like the Work the angles It became like A lightweight party joint And that's oh, when yeah. you know when Indie hip hop was like You yeah, know you can play For girls And they're like oh, Okay this mm-hmm. is cool You know I, I, that's Problematic Anyway
1: Yeah I mean yeah. So that record I remember we had Orders for 10,000 10,000 copies of a Triple vinyl album We were kind of sad Because we were like Damn we only have 10,000 orders for
0: that which like is, what's what's going on? Like, I guess I'd provide context. Now, most people that press a vinyl, they're pressing like two hundred, yeah. yeah, 300, The white label very specific, and that's going going all across the world, not yeah. just in New York. Yeah, exactly. So, so ten thousand to two hundred, you could see again, it yeah, was people, a wide margin. And so,
1: like when we started only selling like ten thousand, the first. Time out. We were like, "Wow!" Like, what year was this? This is like whatever that album came out. I think it might have been two thousand one or two thousand two. No, no, because we were still in DeBrosa uh, Street, so that had to be like two thousand.
0: Okay, and, and was that kind of decline? Not so much. Was it just taste changing, or was it the the kind of slow growth of the internet? No, it
1: was a combination of that, but also I think.
0: Because at some point in
1: time, everybody thought that they could put out a record. So the market just got flooded. Everybody was an independent artist. Everybody was coming at Fat Beats like, yo, in being the gatekeeper, I got a lot of hate. And also got my life
0: threatened a lot, too. Oh, you feel free to share? (laughs) I mean,
1: dude, like... There were so many people that would be just mad at me because I wouldn't take in their 12-inch, you know, because that was their living. And they would just be like, yo, I'm coming down. I'm going to fuck you up. Don't Stick around, please. I'm going to come beat your ass. Yeah, exactly. I'm (laughs) like, but see, I was young and dumb back then because I'd be like, I'm in 9 Debrosa Street. I'm in Sweet So-and-So. You can come anytime. And thank God, thank my God that no one came and no one did anything. But, you know, like I did the first two Frank & Dank records at Fat Beats. Um, that's how I started to work with Dilla. I still used to call him JD back then. And he had a label called McNasty.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Love
1: um, draft he, stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he came with uh, James Poisoner that day. That's how I met him. He came to the office and he was like, this is my man Ramos
0: who I'm still cool with to this day. He's going to run the label. When you saw James Poisoner, do you bring up the whole, uh, yo, I used to drink brandy with Black Thought? <laughs> <laughs> no, you kind of left that. Nah, you, nah, you, nah, you admitted nah, that. that okay. I admitted that one. Okay, So then a year
1: later, Frank calls me up and he's like, yo, um, you didn't pay Ramos for this 12 inch. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I gave him, I have the canceled check where he signed and everything. And you know, them dudes was like, we're going to fuck you up. So I'm like, shit. So then a year later after that, I'm at the knitting factory and I'm with my girl and some dude was like, yo, um, there's an artist upstairs that, well, I can't remember his name. He wants to, you know, say what's up to you. So I'm like, all right, cool. I walk up there with my girl. I'm drinking my Heineken or whatever And as soon as I open the door It's Frank and Dank And I'm like The last time you said to me You were gonna fuck me up I'm like I got a bottle I can at least get one of you And then after that I'm just gonna get crushed because them dudes are big. Yeah, and they're from Detroit. Yeah, they so I'm not, not really around. trying to tell them tough or anything like that. But, you know, to their credit, man, and this is why I still have love for them, they were like, yo, man, I'm sorry, man. Wow. Ramos lied to us. We'd love to do something with you. And, you know, we never got a chance to do anything else with them, or I never got a chance to do anything else with them, but, you know, I still have love for them because, you know, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from because Ramos was, you know, he was, he was a grimy dude back then, And, you know, and he put me in several situations like that where I was like, Shit, bricks. Yeah.
0: Over well, nothing I had anything to do with. You and other artists, was it kind of like, a, again, a freewheeling time? People were just like, yo, take my record. And yeah. were people, <clears> was anybody kind of having like the proper business sense or was it all just.
1: Nah, I mean, it was, <laughs> nah. it was all
0: kind of crazy shit. I mean, you, you, when I first started at Fat Beats, I
1: remember the dude who was in my position before I got into it, he was like, yo, not for nothing. There was this company, Buds. In, uh, Buds New Distribution. G- yeah, wow. and just uh, in New Jersey. Ooh. And They didn't pay some artists, so these artists uh, disguised themselves as UPS delivery people, and they came in the office and they hogtied them dudes. Wow. And they were like, we're going to get our money. So shit like that was happening back then. So
0: yeah, I've heard this. There's another distributor, I'm not going to name their name, name their name but they're from out here and they would do a lot of that stuff too. Was it really because, Oh, I know, I know you yeah, talked about yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But is it really cuz there wasn't money or is just kind of like that kind of that sick that habit that industry has it's just you were just going to be dicks and No, it was just going to be dicks because there was money. What does that come from, dude? Like, it's just why? that way. even in the major labels that they would do well, that to see, people. That's, I think that's what it was like you I guess madam I'm obviously being foolish but that's like something you might expect from the major label world mm-hmm. but not from the indie world it's like yo I, it's very point A point B but it was still it night. was
1: still the same thing. I mean, first of all, in the indie world, a lot of these cats were drug dealers,
0: pimps, hood dudes. gangsters. Yeah. yeah, and they were trying to wash their money. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah. All right. So some of the conscious rap I bought was funded by drugs. Oh, dude. Oh,
1: easily, what? Easily, easily get easily, out. Easily, dude. Like all these dudes talking about righteousness and righteousness. and That dude, they were living
0: foul and selling street. selling cocaine. Yeah, for their goofy rap.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? <laughs> so like, but yeah, you know you can't knock the hustle just like, you know, Jay-Z said, you know, he was another one. He's a prime example of that. You know, he was out there hustling. He's a prime
0: example of a lot of things. (laughs) Exactly. He dates, he's married to Beyonce. Exactly. So I'm like,
1: okay, dude, you know, do your thing, man. But, you know, it was wild back then, man. Like, I've seen so much shit happen. You know, but again, I cherish the friendships that I have with people, and I can't even believe that I can say that I'm friends with Pete Rock. You know, I can call him anytime. I can call Diamond. I can call Finesse, Lord uh-huh. Finesse. Yeah. You know, when I see Showbiz, always cool. You know what I'm saying? AG, a G, always cool.
0: legendary hip hop guys. Yeah, sure.
1: Wow. all of them dudes. Like, and you know, and they also like, and, and I'm naming those producers because again, I would always give them a copy of the on tracks. Like, as this is my homage to you because I learned. This music because of you a lot of times. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah, like you know, sense. it was
1: like a mutual respect, and then they started being like, "Yo, what is this?" Because then we started putting stuff on there that was
0: not sampled. Yeah, that was. I think that was that was the big one for me. Yeah, that was like okay, we've now leveled up. Yeah, I want to like like let's really show off. And that was number four or three. Well,
1: number three we started with, and then number four definitely was a lot of like, you know, because then I started getting into the stuff from Japan and. You know all that breaks over there. And, Is that when the
0: calls from producers like, "Yo, well, let me get that." Yeah, oh, that's yeah. when that started. When yeah, that's when I that started the CD, and, yeah. and, and okay. that must have been a good feeling, like knowing that your con- your heroes are now your contemporaries and now your friends. Is that right? Yeah, I mean it's again it's just a, such a mind fuck, you know what I am saying? And get to know like,
1: Lord Finesse introduced me to Farrell March, and so now me and Farrel March, and whenever I see him, I am like, "Yo, what's up?" Like we're, like, we're homies. And I'm like, damn, I can't even believe this, dude. You
0: still get excited about that.
1: Yeah, because I'm still, at the end of the day, I'm still a fan. You know, you did good work in this world that I still respect. And I respect you as a person as well. You know,
0: why not? You know, so it's... it's you know, I've been blessed, you know? Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. I've been blessed. So that's all I can say, really. And then, so the honeymoon heyday of Fat Beats, when did that end? And when did, or when did it end for you specifically? Well, I, for me, um, I
1: started... you know cause in 2002 I started getting demos that were like most of the demos were like
0: horrible yeah indie rap got really bad for a while I had to defend it but then (sighs) after a while you're like dude, yeah. the Neptunes are making Nori hits and like, it's yeah. kind of hard to play nonfiction at a party. Or, yeah, exactly. You know, or just yeah. listen to nonfiction as an example. I mean, oh, Necro and, you know, and yeah. Necro's my
1: man too, but, you know, it's <laughs> like, I, I can't, you know, I, after a while, Necro's a bad example because I did like some of his stuff, but, you know, there were other rappers yeah, then, was, like, uh, that would come and I'm just like, man, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, Most of the demos were just sitting in the box and I started Not
0: really feel it the joy of doing the job anymore, okay. So it's kind of what like stretch and Bob are saying. Like, after a while, I just felt like, yo, this is you just felt numb to it, right? Yeah, it it wasn't, it was that's why I
1: really related to them when they were talking about that in their movie,
0: Uh you know, documentary, you know, because I was like, I
1: was feeling the same thing, man. Like, it just was so hard to get, like, every once in a while, you get a great demo, you know, and and even then. Because the market was so flooded with so many different distributors, you know, land speed and then traffic and then all these other people putting out stuff, Caroline Distribution, everybody was trying to do what we were doing uh-huh. and just taking all the stuff that we weren't taking. Wow. That's what it was. It was a lot of people that would come to me first, the next thing I know, they were putting out stuff. That's how land speed got big because all the records that we didn't do because they were thirsty about coming
0: up, yeah. they would do. So there was no quality control at this point. No. No one can. So and that's basically- what we
1: were trying to do was to have quality control. It wasn't like we were haters, which still to this people like, yo, you used to hate on my shit. No, I didn't hate you on you. You
0: weren't ready. You weren't there yet. And you know? was there anything in the last kind of few years, was there anything exceptional demo-wise that you're like, okay, we're going to run with this? This is, still has that spirit that got um, me excited at first.
1: I wanted to do the UN EP.
0: Oh, that's P-Rock, Rock, Rock yeah. Marciano. Yeah,
1: I wanted to do that because my man Scott Free, who, uh, who was the one that signed him and Matt, signed uh, Wu-Tang and, and Mob Deep and all that stuff, you know, and Big Pun. He had this side project, the UN I went to meet him and I was like, Yeah, I wanna do it, but you know, we just didn't have the kind of collateral money to do it, the upfront money. You know, so that was one my last record that I and R at Fat Beaks was Ed OG and Pete Rock.
0: Okay, yeah. Actually, uh, I, I remember my, my own worst enemy was the name Audible of Audible Treats, my homegirl Michelle. Yeah, she, she was yeah, exactly. Yeah, shout she out to was Michelle. worked
1: because yeah, I, I gave her that job because she worked me and Khan's first yeah, record that's on how seven I got that's, it too. yeah, too. Yeah, so I was like, and that's my homegirl. So you know, and I know she's from out here.
0: Yeah, uh, originally, but she li- yeah she lives in New York. Now, oh yeah, 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 with the family and everything. Yep. Oh man, yeah, we can talk about the Fat Beats era. Like I can learn, I have that record and yeah, yeah. But we can. All right, so we should maybe switch gears real quick. Okay. So last night I saw you were in San Francisco, you DJ at the Elbow Room. Yep. Hopefully by the time this airs, the Elbow Room is still in effect. It's like a classic San Francisco nightclub, a lot of great parties and, and just part of the neighborhood. And I noticed right away that you now graduated from Selector right. to a DJ that mixes. And then right. when I say Selector, uh, in my head, it's somebody that, you know, their strength is selecting really dope songs, playing right. from start to finish, play another one, repeat. But right. now you're like mixing on Serato. Yeah. Yo, <laughs> That's a big. I was like, "Go ahead, Amir." Like, yeah, yeah I was. I was happy to see that. I, I mean, that I, it, progression. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm sure you've gotten this a lot. You kind of you're grinning and laughing. But how did that happen?
1: Well, I have to thank the love of my life, DJ Reborn, aka Robin. Uh-huh. She, A.K.
0: You're a roommate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> roommates always coming to your rescue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it's more than my roommates. <laughs> yeah, no, this should be so mad. Oh, I'm oh just my your god, your roommate? Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Right, trouble. No, yeah,
1: exactly. Um, no, but she taught me. Like when we first got together, she was like, "I." know you I know you got records but I can't be with a man that can't DJ you know what I'm saying so she helped me and she taught me and I just put in the work you know so Um, what years did you start like I'm gonna start
0: mixing like
1: practicing like 2011 after I left after I left you know last time I was here um we that's the first time we met and you know we started hanging out and you know she was uh, an instructor at Dove Spot uh in New York City for like eight years and so she had been used to teaching people how to DJ and she taught me and so I've learned on vinyl first so I could do the same thing which you heard on last night on vinyl and I know how to do a controller now because she taught me that and yeah, CDJs corporate,
0: corporate DJ hustle yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, get it, get it, you know just yeah. gotta get that money
1: uh huh um, so yeah you know I learned the DJ man and it's all over again yeah yeah I mean I learned to do what what I was trying to do with those records before
0: okay You know. so do you ever like look back and be like oh like you kind of cringe or you kind of yeah, like yeah because uh, I remember when because right, <laughs> I was like wow man like I was really bad. <laughs> I was really, really bad, you know? Yo, so many DJs would, I, I think they wouldn't admit, like, yeah, I was kind of whack back then. Thank you for being so honest. No, nah, I not mean, what this is for. It's the
1: truth, first of all. <laughs> and then, second of all, it's freedom.
0: You know, it's freedom for me because it's like,
1: I'm not trying to pretend that, you know, I was like, DJ Scratch or whatever, you know, since day one, you know, I learned to DJ and I'm still learning to this day, you know, there's still things you, I want to continue to keep learning about and, but it's so great, man, it's like, it's so great to hear like your reaction and other people's because I, you know, I want to be able to like, be out there and DJ and mix and please a crowd and take people on a journey and all those things that come along with it. You know what I'm saying? Like when I was young, watching these cats do it, you know, that's what I want to do. So
0: you're like, you've had a total rebirth in DJing, basically. It sounds yeah. you sound exactly like you, you got a second lease on DJing life. That's so dope. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thankful for it, man. Yeah. I'm really thankful for it. I think, you know, people that have been around for a long time, like lifers, as Excel said it once, it's like, you kind of, you know, the joy kind of, it, it comes and goes, but sometimes it doesn't come right. back as fast. So, right, right. Man, right. props to you, man. Thank um, you. Thank you. Props to the, DJ Reborn. <laughs> props to DJ Reborn. Yes, you, your wife, right? Yeah, yeah. All yeah, right, yeah. that's what's up. Again, we were chatting last night. I didn't know this, but you're a regular nine to five working DJ, grinding. You know, you're not just doing these amazing gigs overseas, which we'll definitely get into next. Okay. But. What is the everyday life of a DJ grinding in New York? (sighs) I mean, I have an idea. I know Um, a thing or two about DJing for a living, but does New York just make it even worse or better or just odd? New York makes it worse
1: right now because, um, first of all, the club culture changed, I think, um, right after 9-11, where before, like, you would come into a bar or a venue, they'd be like, you know, how many people can you bring in that would be dancing to your music that will follow you? Now it's about how many people can you bring in that would drink at the bar? Okay. So it's Which all kinda the-
0: makes more sense if you think about it.
1: It does, but then it, it what happens is like you have to make money off the bar. And it's like ten percent oh. after the bar makes five thousand dollars. And if the bar doesn't make five thousand dollars, you don't get paid. You actually and, lose
0: money because you had to take an Uber or left Home or yeah. a
1: cab. Or I'm that. like, yeah. um, nah, I'm not down with that. Or they want you to DJ for seven hours for $100. I'm like, <laughs> what the
0: fuck is that? Yeah, Miles? that's not happening.
1: So you get offered that a lot. And because there's so many motherfuckers that want to DJ that are out there, like, I have a controller. I can DJ. They'll take those $100 gigs. And people will be, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you've been to Mars to DJ you're going to get a 100 bucks like this person. And I'm like, no. So i turned down a lot of gigs because I just want to keep my worth valuable to me and to others who really know that.
0: You want, you don't want to undercut other DJs. Basically. Yeah,
1: and I also don't want to undercut other DJs. And it's just, it's insulting, man. For, you know, like, to me, that's like, if you're working for $100 for seven hours, that's less than minimum wage, dude. That's like, and then people will try to come, well, what would you do for the love? I'm like, no. <laughs> that's
0: fine. My- no. I mean, I
1: can't go to my landlord and be like, yo, can I just skip this month for the love? Yeah. He'd you know? Maybe give you like a week, two weeks. I don't uh, know. Not my I, landlords in New York, they're like, I might give you an hour. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> they're they're, they're gangsting with that. So, that, you know, and it's like just walking outside the house, You somebody's already got their hand in your, your pocket. That's something for money. I heard.
0: Like, it costs you 20 bucks just to leave your front door. Yeah, more exactly. So, you know, I mean, but do you think though, all right, so I'm going to play devil's advocate and maybe I'll get some clarity on this, on the issue is that if you're passing up, DJs like yourself, passing up a seven-hour, $100 gig that you're not going to take anyways, what does it matter if some person that takes it? What is the negative impact? Well, the negative impact is that, you know,
1: all these bar owners, all these venues, they all talk, you know? And so they're like, well, you know, hey, um, so-and-so took it for $100. Why should I be paying you more than that? And so it, it's a cyclical effect, you know? It, it starts to go around, you know? And then also a lot of these places, even if you do get, you know, Let's say two hundred and fifty dollars, three hundred dollars for seven hours. Fuck, that's dude,
0: that. Even to me, we're lucky out here. We're like no. Yeah,
1: because the thing is, is like even if you get that, then it's, the equipment is shitty as hell.
0: Okay, the
1: mix is fucked up. You know, this is why I've, I've a lot of gigs I've had to do the gig doing instant doubles. Oh, because one
0: turntable doesn't work.
1: Well, they just have
0: one turntable. Okay. And instant doubles is a function Serato, our kind of go-to DJ program that basically it's like a ghost turntable. So yeah. you can go back and forth and whatever. Exactly. I used to do that a lot for mobile gigs. Then I got this... Right. The controller, which I feel like is the C, the dirty C word now in DJ sometimes. I
1: mean, you know, it's
0: whatever. But it's like, you know, so
1: you're dealing with that. the, The sound system is like so bad that your ears are bleeding and people are like, well, you know, you can get two free drinks. And I'm DJing for seven hours and I'm getting a hundred bucks or whatever. I'm like, dude, you guys are really fucking cheap. Yeah. Man. It's like, I barely even drink. That, that sounds offensive to me. You yeah. Know? So it's like, people don't care about DJ culture. There are some places like, I really love DJing at Output and um yeah, in I've Brooklyn. Heard, they do some crazy lineups. Like yeah.
0: World class stuff. Yeah. yeah. You
1: know, i have been lucky enough to open for Q-Tip, Giles Peterson when he comes to New York. I've opened for Cut Chemist, Nightmares on Wax, Bambada, yeah. in the big room and the Panther room because they have three different rooms. They have the big room, which fits like a couple thousand people. Then they have the Panther Room, which fits like maybe, you know, 500. And they have a smaller room. I don't remember the name of that one, but it's a smaller room. But they treat you properly. They ask you what your rider is. You know, like I'm always like, you know, I'll take a bottle of vodka. I just, <laughs> and they, they it'll be right there. Uh-huh. They have Serato. They that's have nice. whatever mixes you want. And they also pay you on time. There's no hassle. There's none of that. I, I like, want to be a
0: Amir when I grow up. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to be just like you. <laughs> So I'm just like, you know, that's one of the great places, you know, and those are, are those uh, relating back to the question, uh, you know, the hustle of New York DJing. Is that those are few and far between? That's yeah. not the norm whatsoever. Yeah. No, that's not definitely not, and
1: not for me. I mean, you know, like if you can talk to Spinner, I know Spinner. Like, you know, a lot of times we we all go through the same situations. It's it's tough in New York, man. It doesn't matter what kind of name you have,
0: it's tough. And that's why a lot of us go overseas and we take that money. And this is why it's so dope to me that you've been able to travel the world off of DJing and, and celebrating and sharing like niche music. Yeah. I mean, do the flex. Where have you been? Wow. Okay. So actually, would it be easier if you say where you haven't been? Well, there's definitely quite a few places
1: I haven't been. But the first place I'm going to say, I went to Singapore in 2011. I played Worldwide Festival with um, Giles Giles Peterson with with Khan. And Giles was like, Amir, don't bring your vinyl. Because at that time, I was still only on vinyl. And I was like, why? he was like, because your records will melt. It's so fucking hot here. So my girl was like, boy, you don't need to be bringing that vinyl anyways. Let me teach you how to use Serato. And she, she taught me how to use Serato. So I you know, I went to Singapore. I've been to Korea. I've been to Japan twice. I've been to Moscow twice. I've been to Turkey.
0: Turkey. Um, and, you're, and you're playing like deep jazz funk. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I've been all
0: over Europe. <laughs> Recently, I was in
1: Serbia this summer. I played in. Um,
0: yeah, I was in Serbia. Sorry, I'm not laughing. at you. I'm just like laughing. Like, God damn, bro! Like, what am I doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was you know in Serbia in August. It was like 105 every day. Dude, I played a Serbian jazz festival, the Nishville Jazz Festival. Patty Austin was the uh, headliner, mm-hmm. and I played with the writer Trobi. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah me yeah. and him were on the same stage. I I went on after him, so I was kind of the headliner, which is so crazy because, I again, coming from a point where I was just a selector and I didn't know how to mix two records to save my life to a point where I'm sharing the stage and I'm the head bill over someone like Reiner Truby. You know what I'm saying? And I'm playing from 3.30 in the morning to 5 in the morning for 5,000 people on that stage.
0: Bro like i'm you know, like i, I want to repeat that cuz United States um overall we don't get the, i mean if there's a 330 530 slot you're playing like you know EDM or maybe hip hop but no. different type of music and you Know there's a drug element to it, and yep. there's like our festival component to it, right? right yeah, right. but this is a festival component where you're playing deeper music. Oh, yeah, they asked and- me not to play any house and no
1: techno. I've said I'm gonna just play some disco and some jazz and some African and some Latin. And I just, yeah, you know, I, I I took a video on my um, Instagram page, and Pete Rock and all of them were like commenting, and like, yo, what the fuck, and I'm like. Bro, I'm just like, oh my god! I'm in ah. yeah, and I'm, you know, still, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm, <laughs> and
0: I'm so happy to see you excited about that because I think yeah. other DJs would be like, yeah, yeah, here just gonna, here's a go, here's yeah, yeah. is nah. it time to finish? Ugh, I gotta go, nah, I gotta go man. take the flight overseas. But you're you like the first time? I'm like a kid in a candy store because
1: again, this is uh, you know I'm relatively new to the whole world of DJing, DJing. You know what I'm saying? So like it's still brand new to me. I mean, not that new, but new enough.
0: You know I'm what loving I mean? this man I'm so, I'm so happy for, To see this reaction This positivity about this Because again yeah. you know, I don't want to see Something like you Get jaded So you're playing The illest shit mm-hmm. In a foreign country A country you may have Never thought You'd ever, oh, you'd ever it go to Definitely would not Be on my bucket list yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. not No diss to it But I'm just like Yo And I got there man It was so Fucking hot it was so hot that the electricity went down in the city so when I got to the hotel there was I couldn't take a shower the air conditioner was not on no water so they came around to the hotel with like bottles of water and when the air conditioner did come on it was like
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was like I thought my brain was gonna melt because it was so hot so this is kind of like the drawback of because everyone again we yeah. always I guess most people in our culture DJ culture think that traveling is just you know first class first rate hotel nothing on the homie's couch mm-hmm. but again it's not like that it's once nope. in a while it is like that Other yeah, time yeah. it's kind of what we're talking about problems and yeah again it's all kind of worth it in the end yeah i mean again i
1: you know growing up in boston i would have never thought i would have been the places i've visited in my life you know what i mean it's just it, i again i i get excited talking about it because i feel very blessed because a lot of my friends from high school you know who follow me on facebook they're like we follow you we try to live through you vicariously because we can't do that It's so exciting to see you travel these places and they comment and they're like, we're so proud of you. And that makes me feel good because, you know, it's like just a young black man from Boston, Massachusetts, you know, being able to go to places I've been to and to experience the things that I've experienced and rock in front of crowds and be like, Mike. June, Mike, that was a June, Mike. <laughs> you know, me and Ashley Beetle were hanging out in Serbia and, like, he's the homie now. Like,
0: he's and like, he's, yo, Yeah, he's a he's a producer, legend. Edit. Yeah, he's one of those guys. Yeah, like, in his you know, and I'm like,
1: I'm like, wow, you know, to know Kenny Dope, to know Spinner, to know Giles Peterson, to, you know, be able to pick up the phone and, and talk to these dudes as if they're peers. You know, Kenny Dope and I had a conversation recently because he wants to, um, and I guess we'll talk on, touching this later on, but, you know, I have multis which i transferred from my catalog and he's like i would love to work with that stuff and we were talking and he was like yeah you know because we're both legends in what we've done we've done and i'm like to hear that from him is like
0: wow You're like who's both there's someone in the line i'm just like yeah exactly yeah yeah." my girl you know to her credit she's like you need to stop cringing and and take that and be like you know and own that because you worked hard for this yeah i mean yo you influenced me and a ton of other kids Mm. uh, like on, you know, like going, digging for records right. and going and like becoming, maybe thinking, you know, maybe I can travel outside my state, my city, my country on yeah. playing uh, underground music. Exactly. It's guys like you, it's guys and your friends like Kenny and Giles and Spinner that kind of create that dream right. that some of us reach for and accomplish. So yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely lo- like live soak that up, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, you I'm just, trying to. Yeah,
0: no, I, I feel I, the look on your face, I wish people could to see it, but there's a, a physical joy I see on you and that's why I, yeah. I, I said that's so dope. You mentioned, you know, Kenny Dope talking about the multi's right. multi-tapes, which is the actual studio session that great right. music was recorded on. Right. That's kind of, is that your focus right now? Uh, your other focus is the uh, music yeah. from the Strata Catalog. Right.
1: Reissue music from the Strata Catalog. I secured the rights back in 2012 with the owner. And so my original deal, distribution deal was with Fat Beats. Now it's with the BBE.
0: Okay. So I've been, you know, doing stuff Deep with them. Barely Breaking Even Records in, yes. out of London. Very influential label too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, that, and I also put out records by myself with them now. I just released a Latin compilation. Yeah. Latin, uh, no, in 2016, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I released that rare New York City comp, of salsa music you know so i do stuff with them the last record i did on um bb from the strata catalog was the
0: Lyman wooded organization yeah saturday night you, special which is like a classic for record yeah. nerds we, yeah, yeah that's exactly that's like a holy grail
1: yeah it's like a holy grail for people and the next record i, I wish i could talk about this record i wish i could i just don't want to jinx myself yet but but it's when it, it comes out we'll, we'll know well you'll you'll know but it's from one of the Five Pillars of Jazz that he recorded a record on Strata and it's never been out before. It's a live recording because Strata used to have a Strata um, concert gallery and they would have, you know, some of the biggest names record live sets there. Like when, let's say when teachers tell their students about jazz. Oh, this dude is like, yeah, so, <laughs> and it's three hours of music. Um, when we do finally do it, it's going to be a five LP set. It's live. There's two songs on there that, um, I was almost said his
0: name. Okay, oh, well, tell me after. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, that he never recorded, but only played for the first time at that show. And then a lot of the songs, the reason why it's so long, because a lot of songs are like 36 minutes long. Jazz does that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I have a cover for it because I have the original flyer for the show from back uh-huh. then. So I, we flipped it, you know what yeah. I'm saying? So I'm waiting for that, because that one's going to definitely hopefully take my labels
0: in a different direction, which, you know... Get the NPR love. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. And and I think this is a question that I really, every time, I kind of think about when we talk about record digging and seeing labels reissue a lot of music, as you mentioned, as a black man putting out black music, do you have like a deeper responsibility or you feel oh, yeah. or is it kind of like, I just like this music, and it needs to be heard? What is it?
1: No, it's a deeper responsibility for me because um not to hate on a lot of the other labels out there that are reissuing music, especially from Europe. But there are some of them that are just, they're exploiting the artists, they're exploiting the labels and they're just trying to put the music out. None of us here in America will ever see the music a lot of times because it's just sold there in, in Europe or in Japan. And this is a part of black history, man. A lot of these artists were trying to do something for their community. They were trying to be artistic. You know, they were trying to be creative. And I just, it's, it's my responsibility to tell that story, you know, to get that story out there. And that's one of the reasons why I love Strata because not only did they do music, but they also created the first jazz music program at Wolverine College in 1970. So that first jazz music program which is one of the biggest jazz programs in the country right now was created by two of the owners of strata records so they were trying to do that they were also doing community drives you know in detroit at the time they were trying to do whatever they could to help the community of detroit because you know in 67 and 68 detroit had two rides
0: back to back And that's the start of the civil rights vietnam eh? that, yeah exactly yeah, so yeah. they
1: you know that's why part of the reason why detroit is in the shape that is in now because of that you know um and so they were just trying to help out. And I think that's a, a fantastic story. Sometimes I wish I could hit the lottery, $500 million, because there's a lot of other labels out there like that, that no one has really come to and really sussed out the proper story of why they did what they did. Yeah. And, it, you know, coming from, you know, my graduate school background where I was trying to get a Ph.D. in sociology, is, it's just kind of like, it,
0: you know, this is the world where I can meld the two. Well, wow, I just realized what you study in college is exactly what you've been doing your whole life is excavating the past, right. being into the future and connecting the dots. Yeah, exactly. And I
1: have to really credit my father for that because he was an avid reader. He read a lot about history. You know, besides the the music that he passed on to me, he passed on a lot of his books too. So I've, you know, I've read that stuff. You know, it's just in me, you know, like that's a part of me. And I, I want to continue to do that. It's hard, man, because <laughs> all my money goes to like putting out these records. Yeah,
0: and it, it's not the fat beats, It's not the big L chair. Uh, no, 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 no. but I think, yeah, I, I think there is, and I do see these reissues where, you know, it's cats from different cultures, different continents, whatever, putting out music. And, you know, it's, oh, great. Thank you for you're sharing this music and once again. Right. I think sometimes there are these subtleties that you really can only pick up if if you're of that same culture. right? Not to right. say your, you know, your, your appreciation isn't genuine, but there's right. little things. There's right. the motivation yeah. behind it. And yours is spreading... You know, black art as a yeah. black man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like it's a part of black history. And a lot of times, if we don't come to these labels, a lot of that music, because of the chemical based and the um the reel to reels, is dying. It's being eaten away. Like it actually disintegrates. Like it's disintegrates. Not just an
0: abstract, but it, yeah, it's like gone the physically.
1: the reel to reels because of the certain the certain reel to reels. Some of the chemicals that were in the uh, mid to late seventies starts to wear away at it to the point where it starts to smell like vinegar and it's like wet that's why you have to when they bake tapes is because they're trying to dry it out
0: oh, okay and yeah. get that one run that you can do and so they it. get these tapes on the reel-to-reels and they, and they actually it down put it, it in the oven yeah they warm them up they plan then they record individually, and that's how they yeah, kind of get exactly share it again for the next generation
1: so but then there's a lot of these cats that have stuff in their basement that either there's a flood You know, because I know Harold McKinney's wife, Michelle McKinney, you know, from um, Tribe Records. Okay, yeah. uh, She lost a lot of his music in a flood, Mm -hmm. you know, and which that's unfortunate, man. You know how much incredible music, you know, we will never hear now.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a race to time. It's not. Yeah. So what you're doing is really like a service (laughs) on a lot of different levels. Yeah. And that kind of makes it all worth it when... The returns are a little...
1: Yeah. Little when stuff. I can
0: take my girl on a vacation somewhere, we can do something.
1: You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I want to be able to do that, you know, repay her back for all the hard work she's put into you know to me because she's been a great supporter of me. You know, yeah. she still is. You know, she's like my number one person, you know? Shout out to her, so
0: yeah, love you, babe, <laughs> and then thank you for what you've done for us, yeah, you know, by proxy. So is this going to be kind of like the next chapter now that you're reborn as a mixing DJ, mm. and now that you're kind of focused on reissuing the past, is that kind of where your horizon for the next five, ten years? Or well,
1: um, speaking of which, my horizon for the next five or so years is not only just doing that, but um I recently spent some time in Berlin from June to November, and while I was there. I got my artist visa to live for two years, but also while I was there, I went to, um, there's a a music school called Music Pool Berlin. They asked me to do a masterclass on how to run a record label. So I did like, you know, workshops on it. So now I'm trying to get into doing workshops. I am trying to shop this other thing about, I'm doing a lecture series on the history of Strata, plus also with the uh, photos, cause I know the original photographer who took a lot of that, you know, stuff. So doing a photo exhibit with her. And just doing, you know, like playing some of the music or doing a party afterwards. So I'm trying to do that because I'm trying to get back into the academic world. It's a little more stable DJing as even across the water, going to whether Japan or or even, you know, Europe. It's still like it's a crapshoot. You know, you have your good months, you have your bad months. And, you know, at this age, I'll be 48 this year. I'm trying to like, you know, have some consistency so that I can enjoy the rest of my life with my girl. You know, we can travel. We can do what we want to do as, you know, grown ass folks. Yeah.
0: And these are, these are things that are on all DJs minds. Like whether they know it or not, this is like, what's next? What am I going to do when I'm 40, when I'm 50? There's, yeah. Yeah. We've had guests that say, I'm not worried about it. I'm a lifer. And other people are saying, you know, there's no retirement. There's no old folks day. There's no, no, there's no union for th- us. There's, there's, we're It's so, yeah, it's always, I always have to ask. Cause again, I think everyone, the general public thinks DJing it's you're set for life and hm. nah, dude, it's not. It's hard like body, man. Traveling is not what you think it is, like we <laughs> you were know, saying before. Yeah, Croatia or Japan or not, you yeah. know, and coach is still coach. Oh, when yeah. You're, when you're six foot two, you, coach is still coach. It, yeah, it, it, it feels sure is. It feels very small, man. Mm-hmm. Damn. Well, yo, Amir, we... We could talk so much longer. I want oh, yeah. to. Get, I want to like nerd out even more. But I feel like um, we've been self indulgent enough already. So That's okay. Yeah. Well, on the way when we go to Group merchant, we'll we'll nerd out some more, man. Okay. So anything else All you want to like plug or, or let people know about? Um.
1: Wow. Well, the only other thing I can say is probably. Um, Berlin, watch out Yeah, Berlin I'll be back Hopefully next month Or, you know Sometime in the, in the middle Of the month You know, I got a gig Right when I get there Back in uh, Sweden, Gothenburg Which is one of my Favorite places you <laughs> flex, know. flex alert Flex you know? alert But when I get back To New York um, I'll be playing Sunday With my man across the street At Bedvine For those folks Who are in Brooklyn uh, For his party And then I'll be playing At New Blue mm-hmm. On um, next Friday uh, uh, Upstairs at Studio 151 in New York
0: This you know, one this won't air For a couple months Oh, okay <laughs> So then
1: <laughs> forget about
0: that, that? F- forget about all that Yo, I, I mean you should ch- regularly check for DJ Amir and his his lovely wife DJ Reborn see them mix records and blow your mind with the past right
1: you might see us DJ together because we have we used to do a party together called He Said She Said in New York, but nobody came Uh, but now people are like you guys should DJ together I'm like like, "Uh, where were you at like six
0: years ago son Um, but anyways thank
1: you so much man it's good to hang with you brother yeah
0: for real I I was gonna say that it's like the first we've talked at length not at a party where there's like a million people in loud music and and we're also in the tank like "Ah, like, speak for yourself it's like like i I talk. <laughs> the top of how we all hung over that day. Anyway, You're man, exactly. thank you so much, Amir. No Love you, man. please brother. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs>